All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we go to prayer and begin our study, I want to bring something to your attention. Some of you know this. I sent out some emails yesterday. Some of you have seen it. I put it on my Facebook page. But I got another email this morning about this from Sharam Hadian. Sharam was our keynote speaker at the Chafer Conference speaking about <clears throat> Islam, what's going on in the world today about Islam, what their goals and objectives are. And this is not a um, politically correct message. It is not one that is accepted today. And he has come under a specific assault, as has Brandon House. Brandon House is a founder and director of a ministry called Worldview Weekend. Every year he has, in different periods of year, these conferences that go on dealing with different topics related to a Christian worldview. For many years, many years, going back maybe 20 years, he has had worldview weekends that he has held in different locations up in Wisconsin, Minnesota, the upper Midwest. Last year, when they were in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there was an attempt by a radical Islamist to do physical harm to the people there. He was arrested with a couple of uh, rifles and several pistols just a few blocks from that, from where the conference was being held. This year, a combined force of CARE, which is a Muslim Brotherhood front organization that has been declared by uh, some is Islamic countries, some Arab countries, to be a terrorist organization, but is allowed to freely operate in the United States. CARE and several Antifa groups, as well as the Southern Poverty Law Center, which posted on their website about these conferences, generated a tremendous amount of antagonistic email, phone calls, and posts on social media that caused the hotels with whom Brandon had contracts that they, several of which they had used for many, many years to cancel their worldview weekends for April. So they had five conferences planned, all of which were canceled because of this uh, hostility from, <clears throat> from these groups. As I said on Thursday night, as we're teaching through First Peter, we are living in a time when we are beginning to see some real opposition in the military, in businesses, in tech companies to Christian, the Christian message. Now we have a problem with the rise of radical Islam and the fact that much of our country doesn't want to admit that they have this agenda. We will, most of us, we'll probably see a time when this gets much, much worse. If you're under 40, I think you're definitely going to see some real horrible suffering in this country towards Christians, ostracizing Christians at the very least to perhaps 
putting them in jail or prison for so-called hate speech. The only solution to this, ultimately, is the grace of God and the gospel. But there are intermediate things that we can do because we have to be involved in the civil process, in the political process, in electing the right kind of officials who will wake up and be involved. We can't just sit back and let it happen. That doesn't mean that the political solution is the ultimate solution, but the ultimate solution, as it has worked since 1776 in this country, the ultimate solution works with the intermediate human solution, which can be uh, put into effect through, through politics. We need to be in prayer for these ministries. They are taking legal action as they can, investigating all of those things. But <clears throat> this is really, I think, a sign of things to come. The true liberty and freedom in this country is not being shut down by the government, but it is allowed to be shut down through the corporate world and a failure to take uh, take a stand against these politically, uh, against uh, those who would um, shut down Christian ministries. So we really need to be in prayer for these things, be in prayer for Brandon House, be in prayer for Sharam. These aren't the only ministries that are being assaulted in this way, by the way. So we need to be in prayer for that and for this nation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare for our study of his word today. Our Father, we're thankful that we have lived in a country that has recognized that our freedoms, our rights are from you, that you have endowed us with these rights because we are created in your image and likeness and as human beings. We have inherent freedoms and responsibilities that are not, do not derive from the government, but that derive from the very nature of our, of our creation. Father, we live in a world where there is true spiritual warfare, there is true uh, opposition uh, from the uh, <coughs> angelic quarter in terms of fallen angels and Satan and demons, and that opposition to Christianity and the truth of the gospel uh, continues to rear its ug- ugly head, uh, not only around the world where there are many who are persecuted, many who are martyrs, uh, many who suffer and languish in jails or prison. Father, we pray that in this country we will not see that, but that you will raise up men and women who will take a stand, who will be involved in the legal and political process to uh, make sure that the laws of this land are followed through. But ultimately, we know that apart from your grace and apart from believers who are involved, not only in getting involved but in the political process, but spiritually being involved in the ultimate solution, which is evangelism, engaging with those who are not saved in a manner that reflects love and grace and humility to explain the gospel and to talk about the fact that only through Jesus Christ do we have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sin. We have meaning and purpose in our lives. Now, Father, we pray for us today as we study your word that we might come to a greater understanding that the world in which we live, although it is ruled by the prince of the power of the air and the God of this age, it is ultimately your world, and we are your ambassadors and representatives here, and that our thinking must be reflective and consistent with and in line with the the worldview that is expressed in Scripture that we call divine viewpoint. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and as a focal point of our study, I chose to just title the message, The Angel at the Tomb. There's a little more going on in this message, but we're going to title it that. And look at what takes place, or begin to look at what takes place in the first ten verses of Matthew. Probably just get through verse six today. Last week we had a flyover. We had a look at what happened on that first resurrection Sunday as it was discovered that the tomb was empty, as it was announced by the angel that he was risen, and that there were many witnesses to the fact, both willing and unwilling, the guards at the tomb were unwilling witnesses as they uh, came out of their shock and their stupor, uh, and they reported that the grave was empty. They went back to the religious leaders, so they were unwilling witnesses, whereas the others were willing witnesses. But but all of them had a difficult time believing what had happened, that he was alive, that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. That's one thing that comes across as you read through these accounts, is the women did not go to the tomb expecting it to be empty. They were prepared to anoint his body as many times as he had warned them and told them and promised them that he would rise from the dead. They didn't believe it. The disciples, when Peter and John ran there, they didn't run there because they expected him to have been risen from the dead. They did not believe it yet. It took time. And even as we will see when we get down to um, down to verse 16 in this chapter, We're told, then the eleven disciples went away unto Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, when he appeared to them in Galilee, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They still doubted. They just, and I think what this isn't saying is that they hadn't believed it yet, but they just, they couldn't believe it. It was just so astonishing. And and we're that way. We believe certain things are true, but we just can't believe it. We have that, that tension because it just seems so so unbelievable. So we're going to look at this and begin to break some things down. And as we do it, ignore the title for this slide. I should have erased it. But uh, we're going to look at three things. The days in the tomb. Second, the earthquakes and angels. This is a dimension to what's going on here that I had not looked at in the past or been uh, really focused on. And then third, the unsuspecting witnesses. Those three things we'll look at as we go through the passage. What we read in Matthew 28.1 is the beginning now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, I think this is somewhat of a summary statement. As I pointed out last time, the comparable passage that we see in Mark chapter 16 talks about what the women did the night before, that they went to get the spices to to anoint the body, that the phraseology here after the Sabbath talks about when the Sabbath ends, which is roughly that year, it was about 7 p.m., and after that you have the first day of the week. In fact, the literal idiom here 
that we see in the second phrase, as the first day of the week began to dawn, they didn't have a name for that first day. They didn't call it Sunday or some other term. It was the first day from the Sabbath, literally. It's a genitive construction. It's the first day from the Sabbath. So that's how they would count it. And, and what that, then you'd have the second day from the Sabbath and the third. What's the focal point of all those phrases? It's the Sabbath. That's the holy day. That's the day to worship the Lord. So everything revolves around what would transpire on Shabbat every week is your day of rest and your day to focus upon the Lord. But the phrase after the Sabbath, there's a lot to read about this. There's a lot that's debated about this. But it basically indicates the Sabbath has ended and it's sometime that night. Now, the next phrase, as the first day of the week began to dawn, probably puts this at a different time frame later on towards morning the next day than Mark does. Mark clearly take, talks about them going to shop and to the shops and to get the uh, spices they need and the things that they needed for the uh, to anoint the body. But that showed that they were expecting the body to be there. And this time they come, and this could have been later, it could have been different. It's It's really tough trying to correlate some of these things. But Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, they were watching the burial. They were watching the preparation of the body, all of that prior to dusk, sundown on Friday. And they were watching it because they wanted to make sure everything was done right and that he was he was buried. And then they left to observe to observe Sabbath. So this looks to me like this may be subsequent to buying the the spices. It's later the evening, what we would call Saturday evening, and they're going just to observe the tomb. I don't think this. Otherwise, you end up poor Mary's just running back and forth across Jerusalem the whole time because, and some people do that. The way they correlate it, they look at John, uh, John twenty. And they see Mary coming before dawn, and then she goes somewhere else, and then she comes back again uh, in, for Matthew 28.1. I, I think that gets her just running all over Jerusalem too much. Poor, poor girl didn't know what was going on. So it's going to be on this third day. Now, what's happened on the Jewish calendar here is, is that you've had three significant days back-to-back. You've had Passover. Pesach, that was, I believe, and I'll show it in, in a minute, began Thursday at sundown and ended Friday at sundown. And then you had the first day of unleavened bread, which began Friday night at sundown and ended on Saturday night at sundown. And then you had a third day that Saturday night at sundown until Sunday night at sundown, which is the Feast of the first fruits. That is the day that Christ is raised from the dead on that Feast of first fruits, and in fulfillment of that, and we'll talk about that in, in coming lessons. But what happens when we get to this, we start talking about this time frame, is that questions come up. Now, I know questions come up in the minds of some of you. I taught on this a, a little bit uh, three weeks ago or two weeks ago when I was in Tucson. And, of course, when we opened it for questions at the end, the first question was what? What day was Jesus crucified on? Do you think Jesus was crucified on Wednesday? What about Thursday? 
that question always seems to come up, and I thought this was an appropriate time to address this. The reason this question comes up is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 12:40, In the midst of the passage dealing with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees reject Jesus' claim as Messiah, claim that he's casting out demons uh, on the power of, of Satan, Jesus rebukes them, announces this condemnation, and he says that this sign will come. It's the sign of Jonah, and he describes this as, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, which is a quote from Jonah, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A couple of things I want to comment on here. First of all, it's a quote The three days and three nights in the belly of the fish is a quote from Jonah. It's a quote from the Hebrew in Jonah. So that tells us immediately that this phrase is a Hebrew idiom. It is a Hebrew phrase. It's not to be interpreted from a Greco-Roman 20th century uh, way of telling time and counting days. Okay? This is a, um, this is an idiom that grows out of Hebrew, and the way in which the Jews and Middle Easterners counted time, as I've said before, isn't the way that you and I do. We count the first year of somebody's presidency from the first day they are inaugurated until 365 days later. But the Jews and many Middle Easterners counted the reign of a king in terms of part of a year. And in the Mishnah, it says that if uh, the year began with Nisan, that was the ceremonial year, if the year began in Nisan, which is roughly March or April in our calendar, if the year began then and the king begins to reign at the end of the year, what we would say is January, uh, then he is that that whole year is counted as a year, even if it's only been a few days. Now, we would say, well, that's not right. How would you say he ruled the whole year or reigned the whole year if he's only reigned for one day of that year? But that's how they counted. So that's not how we count. So we have to understand that as as part of a background. So we have to learn to count as Jesus counted. And every time we get into this discussion on what what day of the week was Jesus crucified on, this this verse comes up. I know that from two reasons. I know it because I'm always asked it, and that's always what's brought up. Number two, that for many years, until probably about eight or nine years ago, I firmly believed in a Wednesday crucifixion, and that was the first thing I would bring up. And I'm going to point out why this this is this is a problem. It's a problem because when we look at all of the time terms that are used in the Gospels, they all have to mean the same thing, okay? So when we get into Matthew 26, 61, uh, this is when the, uh, the Pharisees are, are saying, look, you are talking to Pilate about putting a guard on the, um, on, on the tomb, and they're saying, this guy said, talking about Jesus, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That's less than 72 hours. What typically happens is when people look at the Jonah passage, they say three days and three nights means three full days, three full nights. That's got to be a minimum of 72 hours. 
Well, that would also mean that if he's resurrected after that, that he's resurrected on the fourth day, not the third day. But here they quote Jesus as having said it would be in three days or on the third day. Matthew twenty-seven sixty-three, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days. Wait a minute. Is it in three days or after three days? The terms are synonymous. Uh, after three days is only used by the religious leaders here and by Mark in the Gospel of Mark. The other Gospels say on the third day or in three days, which mean the same thing. So either everybody's confused or all these terms have to mean the same thing. It's just how language works. It's just the idiom. Mark fourteen fifty fifty eight. They're quoted as saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and within three days. So this is less than 72 hours again. Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day, not after the third day, but on the third day. Same thing in Matthew 17, 23, they will kill him and the third day he will be raised up. So this is less than 72 hours. My point is that all of these ways, whether it's after the third day, on the third day, the third day, they're all talking about the same period of time. Now, the normal way that they counted is demonstrated in Scripture. We see Jesus use it this way in Luke 13, 32. He says, Go tell that fox, he's talking about Herod Antipas, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Notice how he's counting time. Today is the first day, tomorrow's the second day, and then the third day. Now, it's so that's how you would normally uh, count that, count things. Today would be day one. Tomorrow is day two, and then the day after it would be the third day. We have some illustrations of this from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's important because, remember, the key phrase comes out of Jonah. It's an Old Testament book, and we're talking about Old Testament Hebrew idiom. doesn't matter what Roman idiom is. It doesn't matter what the Greek idiom is. We're dealing with Hebrew idiom. Leviticus 19, 5, and 6. If you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day, and if any remembers until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. You see what he's done? Today is day one, tomorrow's day two, then it's followed by the third day. You see the same thing in Exodus nineteen, ten and 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So today is one day, tomorrow is a second day, and then you have the third day. Now, why have I emphasized that? Because when we come to Luke twenty four twenty one, we see the re- a reverse process. So we understand that if we count, today is day one, tomorrow's day two, and the next day is day three, when Jesus is talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know who he is, he's uh, cloaked his identity so he can talk to them about what has happened, explain to me what has happened, what's what's going on, and they're amazed, where have you been? 
all these things that have been going on in Jerusalem, you don't know. And <clears throat> there was this man, Jesus, and we hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, they say, besides all this, today. Now, what day are they talking? This is Jesus' appearance to these two disciples late in the afternoon of Sunday. Doesn't matter whether you're Roman, whether you're Greek, whether you're Hebrew, whatever you are, if they're talking on Sunday afternoon and they're Jewish, when they say today is the third day, when did that day begin? It began at sundown Saturday. What ended at sundown Saturday? The second day. Okay, if Sunday afternoon is the third day, the second day ended at sundown on Saturday. And when did that day, that second day begin? It began on sundown on Friday night. What ended at sundown Friday night? The first day. When did the first day begin? The first day began on Thursday night at sundown. So from Thursday night to Friday night is the first day. Now Jesus is crucified on the first day, and that when they're talking to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they're talking about all these things that happened. They're talking about the crucifixion. All those events that transpired happened after Thursday sundown. They had the Last Supper, where we talked about with the Lord's Table, after sundown Thursday, after midnight, they went to Gethsemane. He's arrested. You have the trials. All of that happens on the first day. Then the second day is Saturday, and the third day is on Sunday. That's the only way you can understand this. Today is the third day since these things happened. And he follows just what I've explained already, that today's the first day, tomorrow's the second day, and then we have the third day. There is a footnote in the Babylonian Talmud that states when the time is undefined, part of a day is reckoned as the whole day. Now, I've heard that from every Hebrew or Jewish Christian scholar that I've known from Arnold Fruchtenbaum to many, many others. And that's what first got me thinking about this, was that if this three days and three nights meant three literal days and three literal nights or 72 hours, then why is it that I can't find a Jewish Christian scholar that would affirm that that's an important issue? Every one of them argues for a Friday crucifixion. Another term is a day of preparation, that that's preparation for the Sabbath. But we have more confirmation from the Old Testament. In Esther, in Esther 4.16, Esther has come to a realization that Haman, at that point y'all are supposed to boo and hiss, and that's what happens at the, uh, at the plays that they put on in Purim. Haman is the bad guy. He's anti-Semitic. He, want, he has convinced Ahasuerus to... Um, uh, to give one day when every Persian can kill as many Jews as they want to. It would have been a major holocaust from that time. And so 
as Esther's discovered this, she has to go into the presence of Ahasuerus, and if he doesn't recognize her and let her come forward, that's off with her head, she's dead. So she is gathering her close friends together, and she says in verse chapter 4, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night, and day. That's about as close to three days and three nights as you can get. Okay, but how is this applied? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It happened on the third day. Now, on the third day, just like at Jesus' time, means before the third night. I've tried to figure this out. If there's any other way around it and you can't get it, the third night follows the third day, just how you count. So it happened on the third day. So here you have a phrase, three days, night, and day does not include the third night. That establishes this as an, as an idiom of how they counted, counted time. We see an earlier example in Genesis with Joseph, and he takes his brothers and he puts them all together in prison for three days, and then in verse 18, then Joseph said to them, and in the Hebrew, it, see it doesn't include the preposition in English translations, but in the Hebrew it says on or in the third day. So again, it's before the full 72 hours is completed. So I think this, there's a lot of other details you can go into to substantiate a crucifixion on Friday, resurrection on, on Sunday, but this pretty much satisfies it that the only objection to that has, biblically has always been that three days and three nights from Matthew chapter 12, and yet... What we see here is that that has to be understood uh, idiomatically, and there's support for that uh, from Old Testament usage. Now, the next question is, why is the third day important? Was there some significance to that? If you were Jewish, would you have thought of something? There's a passage in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic passage. It's not going to be fulfilled until Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. That's the ultimate reference point. And it's in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where the prophet says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. It's talking about God's announcements that he will divorce Israel and bring divine discipline on her. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, if you exegete and interpret that passage correctly, it's talking about what will happen at the end of the tribulation period when Israel calls upon the Lord to deliver them. But in Second Temple Judaism, this phrase, the third day, had come to be an idiom for real when you realized the forgiveness of God, the finalization of redemption and the arrival of God's forgiveness and redemption. That's interesting. If you were Jewish, that's what you were taught, was the third day is when you will realize God's redemption. So I think there's a significance to why Jesus was in the tomb for those three days and three nights. So back to the beginning of our passage. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And then we're told that something happened. Now, this is interesting to look at what 
the chronology is here and to read carefully. Verse 2 we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake. That's the first thing that we're, that's pointed out. But other things are happening at the same time. Then the next word is the Greek word gar, which indicates an explanation of this earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, if you read that too quickly, you'll think that that the earthquake caused the stone to roll away. But that's not what the text says. The text says that the angel rolled it away. There's a great earthquake, and the explanation for this earthquake is that the angel rolls the stone away. Now, if you want to put this in geologic terms, what you have when there is a fault line is that there's an incredible amount of pressure that comes to bear at these different points. And then something happens physically that triggers an earthquake. Now, that's all fine and good if you believe in a closed universe. But we don't believe in a closed universe. We believe that we that there's an open universe. It's open to God. See, this is a problem I pointed out with those who interpret uh, everything from economics to politics from a closed system, is that God actually intervenes in human history. So physical trigger points aren't the only kind of trigger points. There are spiritual trigger points. See, what this points out, and what I'm going to show is how this fits within the structure of biblical revelation, is that there is an intersection between the material and the immaterial, between the visible and the invisible, between the physical and the spiritual, that is not open to investigation through empiricism or rationalism. We can only know about it through revelation. And this is what we see here, is that there is something going on physically, but what triggers... The earthquake is something spiritual. The angel moves the stone. And when the angel moves the stone, it has this impact on the physical creation, and there is not just a little rumbling. The text says that there was a great earthquake. Now, it could be that this is an aftershock from the great earthquake that occurred when Jesus died on the cross. But that, too, shows an intersection of the spiritual with the physical that we can't investigate in the science classroom. Now, let's fit this within a pattern in Scripture. We can go back to Genesis chapter 19, and we see that there are two angels and God who come to visit Abraham. Then we have this interchange as God tells Abraham that what he's going to do is he's going to bring judgment on the cities of the, of the plains, and he's going to bring judgment on, on Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities for their, for their sinfulness. And then the, Abraham pleads with God to rescue the righteous, which is righteous Lot, as he's called by Peter. And so the two angels go to warn Lot and his family to get out of Dodge, otherwise known as Sodom. They're going to get out of Dodge. And so they say, um, 
her, the angel says to Lot, because he's about the, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be completely incinerated by fire and brimstone. But the angel makes an interesting statement. He says, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. See what Lot said just before this is, let me get out of here. There's a little town over here called Zoar. Let me go stay there. And so the angel says, okay, we won't destroy Zoar. You go there. But I can't do anything until you arrive there. And after Lot gets there, we're told in verse 24, then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that interesting? There's a trigger point that's spiritual, but then there's a physical thing that happens. We see it happen sometime later at Mount Sinai. We see in Exodus 19:18. now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. You have this massive earthquake because of the presence of God on the mountain. It's triggered by a spiritual reality. What else we know from this is that angels were present. We know that from Galatians 3.19, where Paul tells us in that last line, and it was appointed, that is, the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. That angels are not talked about in Exodus, but Paul tells us that angels were present on Mount Sinai. We see it again with Elijah in 1 Kings 19.11, as he has fled south to Horeb, which was another name for Mount Sinai. And while he was there having his little pity party, God is going to give him a little biblical counseling and is going to reveal himself uh, through these different events to teach uh, Elijah a few things. And in the middle of it, there's a strong wind, and it breaks the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And and then it goes on to say, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. The point that I'm making here is that God shows up, and there's an earthquake. It's that intersection, and we see it from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. Then we go jump ahead to the future, to Revelation, and we see in Revelation eight five, which is um, in the uh, after or during the trumpet judgments, the angels took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, or this is between the uh, trumpet judgments, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and what? An earthquake. An angel triggers, does something and it triggers an earthquake. Same thing in Revelation 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell. Revelation 19, you see another earthquake. Revelation 16 and 17, the seventh bowl judgment, the seventh angel poured out his bowl. And verse 18 says, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake. All the way through scripture, you have these events where God shows up and there's these various manifestations, one of which is often an earthquake because the, the creation of God and the holiness of God impacting this fallen creation seems to create this, this environment. There is a trigger point that is spiritual and not physical. And, of course, the ultimate one is the prediction in Zechariah 14.4, 
that, and we do know that there is a fault that runs right through the Mount of Olives, and that pressure is building all the time, but the trigger is going to be the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to the Mount of Olives, and then there will be a massive earthquake, and the Mount of Olives will split in half, which will allow for the Jews who are under persecution and uh, in Jerusalem to escape through the Mount of Olives. So when we read this, and we read about this great earthquake, this isn't just some little tangential thing that happened. It is integral to understanding that God has shown up here and is doing something, and it fits a pattern that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And so we can't just come in and say, oh, this is some sort of made-up apocalyptic scenario. It fits everything that we know in Scripture. And a result is, of this is that the women, I called them unsuspecting witnesses, they weren't planning to be witnesses of the resurrection. They were going there that day to anoint the body. They were not thinking about anything about resurrection whatsoever. And what happens is when the angel, when they show up, they describe the angel, his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. This is language that is often used to describe God, to describe the throne room of God, and uh, it describes uh, Moses after he has been in the presence of God. It is a reflection of God's glory. And it is so brilliant that the guards shook for fear. The same word is used there as shake for fear as for an earthquake. And so there's a little pun going on here, a play on words in, in the Greek text that <clears throat> the angels angel came and it shook the ground, but it also shook up the guards. And whereas Jesus was supposed to be dead, he's alive, but they fall down as if they are dead. It, it's a little humor in the story. The angel answers and says to the women, don't be afraid. Remember on Thursday night we talked about whenever God shows up, people are afraid. All the way through Scripture. And that's what's happening here. They're afraid. And so the angel says, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. They are to be witnesses, so there is going to be a show-and-tell moment so that they can see and be witnesses of the empty tomb and then go tell people about it. They weren't planning to be witnesses. This isn't something that was made up. We see this all the way through the episode. We'll talk about it again with Peter and John and with the other disciples. This is the last thing they expected. And they don't necessarily come willingly to accept the fact that there's a resurrection. There has to be many convincing proofs, as Luke puts it in Acts chapter 1, before they stop doubting. And then they are told, verse 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. We'll come back to that next time. But the point is that they were not planning to be witnesses. They were unexpected, unsuspecting witnesses, but they become the first to be witnesses that Jesus has risen from the dead. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, to examine what you have revealed, to see the patterns that are there that are so important, to reinforce in our minds the accuracy, the historicity, the veracity of the text, that this is what happened. It bears the mark of authenticity, that this is how you have worked in history and will work in the future. Father, we pray that whoever is listening to this message, whether they are here or whether they are watching on the Internet or later on, that if there's any that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would come to understand that we are all fallen, we are all under condemnation, none of us are perfect. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the essence of God, all that you are. The only solution is for you to provide the solution which you did through Jesus Christ. His resurrection is sort of the stamp of approval on that crucifixion, on what he did by dying for our sins, his acceptance by you. And, Father, the reality that it's to give us real life, new life, and that we have that only because our sins are paid for. But we need to believe in Jesus, to trust in him and him alone, because Jesus is the full and total solution, but we have to trust in him and him alone for that to be applied. We pray that any listening now who's never trusted in Christ would do so, would believe that this is true, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And we pray for the rest of us that we will be challenged with a greater conviction of the truth of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture, and that we should have a passion to know your word and to know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.